Last time, if you remember, we started a teaching on doubt. In fact, we were talking about Doubting Thomas, right? We highlighted some of the incidences in the life of uh, Doubting Thomas. I want to follow up on this theme a bit this time, because I think it's an area we kind of all need to fight through from time to time. Christians dealing with doubt. You know, and at first this title might sound almost sacrilegious to some people, you know. Uh, Christians should never have doubt and unbelief, you know, but... uh, If we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we all go through periods of spiritual dryness, many times coinciding with difficult things that go into our our lives. Uh, The death of a loved one, uh, the loss of a job, broken relationships. Spiritual dryness can really shake people up sometimes. And it can lead to fear. And it can even lead to doubt in some cases. But as we're going to see in Scripture, doubt is not always something bad. In fact, at times it can be very useful. Now, I'm not talking about the doubt that leads to depression or the doubt that leads to apostasy or doubt that leads to unbelief or a hardened heart, but similar to what Francis Schaeffer used to say about guilt. He said this, he said, guilt is like a watchdog, useful to have around to alert you to danger. But if the watchdog turns and attacks the homeowner, it needs to be retrained and restrained. You can say the same thing about doubt. It helps us to see things at different angles, to see things perhaps more clearly. Now, all Christians we know should strive towards having a lifelong spiritual growth, right? That's what discipleship is all about. Lifelong spiritual growth. That's what we want to do. We want to progress all the time. But as we grow and we learn more, some of the things we used to believe come into doubt. And that's what's called maturing in Christ. For example, you may have believed at one time that when you became a Christian that all your troubles would instantly go away. Yes, I did. Anybody ever believe that? Yes. Or, you know, or that your behavior would instantly change. Or that you would go into ministry and save the whole world. Right? But soon as you lived your new Christian life, you began to realize that this image of salvation is not really what it is. You came to realize that you live in a broken and fallen world, that you're still a human being that has daily battles with temptations and faith, and that your chances of saving the whole world are about the same as boiling the ocean. (laughs) Not very good. Sometimes things just don't turn out the way we expect them to, or we want them to. Can anybody relate? Yeah, I think so. I'm sure you can think of a few, if not many, examples of you in your own life right now. Although we must be careful, doubt can be a doorway to spiritual growth if it makes us to search out the answers, not be complacent with the same old thing. The goal of every Christian, as I said before, should be to grow, to be more Christ-like every day. This is the process we call sanctification, right? Where we seek to grow and be more and more mature, more separated unto God through the power of His Holy Spirit. But like most growth, Sometimes it can hurt. Sometimes growing can be painful. We must evaluate ourselves. We must be truthful to ourselves. What do we really believe? We need to ask ourselves the hard questions. If we're to strive for a living and growing faith, we've got to ask ourselves the tough questions. Now note that I'm not, I'm not saying here that doubting is the same as scoffing. You remember scripture says to beware of scoffers, right? There's a difference between being a doubter and a scoffer. 
The scoffer refuses to examine the facts, and he refuses to allow his mind and his actions to be changed by the power of God. To effectively deal with doubts, we must submit our hearts to God and allow him to heal and to teach us. Turn with me to Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, starting in verse 13. And when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Who do people say that I am? Why do you think Jesus would ask such a question? Do you really think he cared about his popularity? I don't think so. I think what he's really doing is just establishing a baseline for his next question, which was, who do you say that I am? In verse 14, they say John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, quite an impressive list of names, but still none as great as the Lord himself. What about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say that I am? You guys know me better than anybody else. Has it clicked yet to you just who I am? And even if it has, are you willing to stand up against the crowd who is saying these things? Are you willing to stand up and speak the truth that has been revealed to you? Everybody else is saying one thing, but now are you going to say something else? The anointed one who will come and save Israel. Good question. I want to draw your attention back to verse 14 with that list of people that are mentioned. John the Baptist... Jeremiah, Elijah. They're all known as wonderful, powerful men of God, and they did great exploits, great feats for God. But here's what I want to highlight today. Even though they were some of the greatest men of God, yet all of them still, every one of them, went through bouts of depression and even doubts of God. Yes, even these guys did. Why do I want to bring this up today? So that maybe we'll stop beating ourselves up when we question God and say, God, what is going on here? I don't understand it. And sometimes we do that. When we don't know what's going on, we say, wow, where's my faith? What's going on? And we start beating ourselves up. Realize that that's okay. It can, in fact, help us to grow to the next step. If you remember just a few weeks ago, we talked about John the Baptist, right? Now remember, how exactly did God use John? Quite a bit. John heard from God in the wilderness to preach repentance, right? Because the kingdom of God was near. He obviously baptized crowds of people who came to him. Then he even baptized Jesus himself, right? The skies opened up and he heard the voice of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God used John. God spoke to John. He heard the very voice of God telling him that Jesus was his beloved son. 
Talk about confirmation. Wow. But if you remember, something else happened then. Eventually, John was captive. He was, he was captive, captured and he was thrown into prison. And after a while, his mind began to work against him. Was it really God who told you to baptize all those people? Did you really hear the voice of God? Just who do you think you are anyway, John? Hmm. Can anybody relate? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. It sounds just like what Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness, doesn't it? If you're really the Son of God, right? Turn these stones into bread. If you're really the Son of God, jump off this mountain and nothing will happen to you, right? If you're really the Son of God. So we see what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, now let's talk about Jeremiah. The next one in the list, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was very young when he was called into the ministry, remember? In fact, he considered himself too young, he said. But God touched his mouth and he filled his mouth with God's words. Jeremiah had a very difficult message to preach. Remember what was going on in that time? He was to condemn not only his fellow people, but also the rulers and even the kings of the time. He condemned them for their idolatry and for all the social injustices that they had instigated. He issued a call to repentance. Change your ways, people. Change your ways or just judgment is going to fall. What made it so difficult is that he was tasked to tell a very content group of people that judgment was coming on them. They were safe in their religion. They didn't think anything bad could happen to them. But if we read about it, we see that they trusted in the wrong things. They trusted in the temple. They trusted in the sacrifices that they did. They trusted in the law of Moses. Yeah, well, what's wrong with those things? It sounds pretty good, but think about it. They trusted in the temple. They're trusting in something. They trusted in the sacrifices or some of their actions. They trusted in the law of Moses or their heritage. They thought they were safe. They weren't trusting in God, in God, in the relationship they had. They thought they were safe. I once heard a pastor give a good illustration, and I think I've told you this before, in regards to protecting a house from fire. And he said that the, the most dangerous house on the block is the one that has a smoke detector, but the battery is dead. Right? You think you're safe. You think you're protected, but you're not. So what made matters worse for Jeremiah is that there were many false prophets in those days as well, and they were telling people the things that they wanted to hear. But regardless of how difficult it was, Jeremiah got it done. He followed the Lord's leading. He gave forth the message. He knew that God was with him, and he saw the hand of God on his ministry. God gave him these amazing visions. And you remember, he wrote with all this symbolic language. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love to have that connection with God and give you all these things? Wouldn't that be awesome to be that close with God, to hear directly from him? If we further study Jeremiah's life and find out that he had a very strict prayer life, but he was also a very sensitive man. He was filled with much compassion for the pain that the people were about to suffer if they didn't repent. He realized the awful punishment that would be greatly affecting these people. And the compassion earned him the nickname of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. 
Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah 15, let's start in verse 16. 15, 16. Jeremiah is speaking here, and after he had spoken all these things to the people, he was feeling the frustration here. And he said, Lord, your words were found, and I did eat them. And your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I sat not in the assembly of mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you be altogether to me as a liar and as waters that fail? Wow. Wow. Here's Jeremiah. The man that I just said did all these things with this incredible prayer life and heard all these things from God and did all these great exploits. But what happened? He tells us in verse 17, he's complaining to God. In verse 16, he says, I heard your word, and it was, it was food to me. I ate them. And then in verse 17, he says, I sat not with the mockers. In other words, my behavior was upright. I didn't allow myself the pleasures of indulgences. I even separated myself to keep myself pure unto you. God calls us to be sanctified, doesn't he? Jeremiah tells us that he was indignant against sin. You have filled me with indignation. He was indignant against sin. Sin is wrong and he did not compromise about it. Then he tells something in verse 18. He says, "My, my pain is unending. It's perpetual. It's unending. It's incurable. It's long suffering. He saw no end in sight. He was in despair with no hope. And then look what he says to God. Will you be altogether to me as a liar and as waters that fail? Imagine calling God deceptive. One that fails. Is this a lack of respect? Or is this one that is just so fed up and frustrated that he can't take it anymore? Fortunately, he knows God well enough to know that forgiveness is available to him, even though his doubts were overwhelming him at that point. So we ask ask ourselves, how could someone who is used so greatly of God have such fear and such doubts in his heart? What's more, how could God ever trust him again or have favor upon him again? But you know what? He did. He did. And he continued to use Jeremiah as his spokesman for many years later. The point is that God forgives. And what's more, God knows us. He knows us. He knows when you're speaking out of frustration, and he doesn't give up on you. Your questions, if they're sincere, will lead to answers. And answers will lead to growth. And again, That's what all this Christian walk is about. That's what discipleship is all about. It's a process. It's a continual growth. We must never stop growing. 
No matter how old we get or how long we've been doing this, we must never stop growing. So we've looked at John the Baptist. We've looked at Jeremiah and we saw his struggle. But surely not Elijah, right? Surely not Elijah. There's no way that he wrestled with not knowing and with doubt, did he? Let's take a look. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19. Hold your place there for a second and let me give you a little background. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen deeply into sin. The king at that time was King Ahab. You may remember him. The man who made the terrible mistake of marrying a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel, if you remember, was an ardent, dedicated worshiper of the pagan god Baal. And mainly because of her influence, Baal worship became even more dominant in Israel than even worship of Jehovah, if you can imagine such a thing. Elijah was considered a great prophet. He fought against false gods and idolatry, and he confronted Ahab to return, to repent, turn back to God, or to face the consequences of severe drought and severe famine. He didn't change. So during the drought, Isaiah stayed with a widow, if you remember, whose son, and a widow and her son, and she fed him. Remember, she listened to the man of God and the miracle of how her flour and oil never ran out. Remember that? She blessed the man of God. Elijah was also used by God. She raised up this widow's son from death. Remember that? God was using him. God was using him in all these different miracles. And then we see the climax, the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Remember, he said they were going to prepare a sacrifice. He called out all the prophets of Baal. And he said, let's make a sacrifice. We put it on the altar, put it in his wood and the altar, and they'll call down on your God and see who lights the fire for the sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal were trying and trying and trying and trying, and they couldn't do it. Then all of a sudden, Elijah said, God, call down the fire on the sacrifices. And not only on his sacrifice, but on their sacrifice as well. Made a fool of the prophets of Baal. He consumed the sacrifice. And then Elijah ordered the killing of all the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more so, if I make not your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay and slept under the juniper tree. Behold, then an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and there was a cake baked on coals and a cruise of water at his head. 
and he did eat and drink and lay himself down again. Let's stop there. Ahab told Jezebel what just happened. He killed all your prophets. Once again, Jezebel was a dedicated follower of Baal. Now look at verse 2. I think this is really kind of interesting. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. So let the gods do to me even more so if I make not your life like the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. This reminds me of like a mafia movie. Doesn't it? The sole purpose of this verse was to inflict fear. The sole purpose of this thing. It certainly wasn't a warning meant to help him, right? Hey, I got a message for you from the queen. You know? You're dead. You're dead. It was meant to inflict fear, and that's exactly what it did, right? Elijah took off for the hills. He went to the wilderness. And then in verse 4, he had what I like to call a Popeye moment. It's all I can stand because I can't stand no more. He went and he hid. He He reached the end of all that he could take. And not only did he wish he could die, he actually prayed that he would die. Can you imagine that? Not only do you feel so bad that you oh, I wish I was dead. God, take me now. Take me now. He can't stand it anymore. Have you ever known anybody that low? Have you ever known anybody that's gone that low? I have. It's not easy to see. Kind of difficult to deal with. You really need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to deal with something like that. You've got to be very, very careful and very, very compassionate, patient, and listening. Because a lot of times we take things too for granted and we'll just spout off some things that, oh yeah, yeah, goodbye. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. Look what happened after here in verse 5. And he lay under a tree. He fell asleep, and the angel came and touched him. Arise and eat. The angel came and woke him up. You see, the Lord was restoring him. He was nourishing him, restoring his body with food, restoring his mind with sleep. Once again, we see the doubt and the fear of one who trusted God. One who did mighty and difficult things by the power of God, but somehow his faith had weakened and failed for the moment. But also, once again, we see the faithfulness of God in restoring a broken soul. God didn't destroy him for his doubt, for his fear, for his failure. We need to know this when we doubt, when we fail, because we do. It's not over. He won't abandon us. So don't abandon him. He won't abandon us, so don't abandon him. I want to look at one more example this morning. We all remember that great rock of the faith, Peter, right? Yeah, he was a rock. But we also know that he's the one who betrayed Christ at the end, right? But I don't even want to look at that one. I want to pick an entirely different episode. Go with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 
Matthew chapter 14. Jesus had sent the disciples out on a boat. Verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter came out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him, and said to him, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Stop there. They were terrified. They saw Jesus walking on the water. They were terrified. It sounds funny, right? You would be too, wouldn't you? You're out there on a boat, you see some guy walking on the water, you'd be terrified too. They thought they saw a ghost. And once again, Jesus had to calm their fears, right? He keeps having to do that, doesn't he? Every time he sees them, he keeps having to calm them down, guys. There's, no, you know, there's nothing to worry about when he's around, is there? Don't worry, guys, it's me. There's nothing to worry about when he's around. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. We have to keep reminding each other of that, right? Yes. Peter was still not convinced in verse 28. He said, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come out to you on the water. He wasn't convinced yet. Peter put Jesus to the test. If it's really you, let me come. So what did Jesus do? He took him up on it. Now Jesus puts Peter to the test. And he says, okay, come on. And Peter came, the only other man besides Jesus, to walk on the water. Isn't that cool? What a tricky, incredible feeling that must have been, right? Out there defying the laws of gravity, defying the laws of buoyancy, kind of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, you're doing these incredible things. Kind of like bouncing around on the moon. But then what happened? He realized just what he was doing. His brain kicked in, and all of a sudden he realized, hey, humans can't walk on the water. What am I doing? And he began to sink. Do we ever do that? We get off to this great start, and we realize, hey, this is crazy. What am I doing? So Peter started to sink. And then Jesus said to the rest of the disciples, well, nice knowing him. It's the last time he'll doubt me. Literally, right? Is that what he said? No. Jesus picked Peter up and brought him out to safety. Why did you doubt me, Peter? Why did you doubt me? We've got some work to do on your faith, don't we? See, God knew Peter's heart. He knew that Peter loved him, but still Peter was yet weak in his faith. Christian author Philip Yancey wrote this. He said, evidently God has more tolerance of doubt than most churches do. Ouch. When a lot of churches get the word that one of their own is experiencing doubt or has questions, it's as if they write him off or excommunicate her. All of a sudden, tolerance goes out the window. But if we learned anything from this message today, it's this, that it's okay to have questions. In fact, you should have questions. It shows that this brain up here is still working. 
God doesn't expect you to have it all figured out yet. Just like John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, Peter, and any other human that has ever walked with God, you're going to have to face your doubts. But do so honestly, without condemnation, and always with a sincere heart, trying to understand, but still coming to grips with the fact that you're never going to understand everything. But don't let that stop you from trying. Our Christian walk of discipleship is one that is marked by progression. One step at a time. One victory at a time. A great preacher was once told, I don't have enough faith to believe all that. And his answer was great. He said, you don't need to have enough faith to believe all that. You just need enough faith to take the next step. Amen. Amen.